1: I see talent in you that you don't even see. He said, you're a jack of all trades, master of none. He said, I've never seen such a waste of talent. He said, if you're finally ready, willing, and able to make some changes, I'll be your mentor. I'm divorced twice, never finished high school, had to borrow money to pay my rent, been living on macaroni and cheese for three straight months, and I finally woke up, Michael, and said, hasn't been working real well, okay, it's time for a new game plan.
0: Welcome to this special interview with Sales Master, Stan Ballew. This is part one of a two-part interview. The title of this interview is called Exposed The Real Truth About the Deep-Seated Psychology of Face-to-Face and Telephone Selling. Stan Ballew has been called the most copied, respected, and referred-to sales trainer alive. He has built a 30-year reputation as a recognized expert in sales training, telemarketing, motivation, mentoring, marketing, and copywriting. He has doubled his own income each year for five consecutive years selling over the telephone. Stan has taught more six- and seven-figure-a-year income-earning megabuck sales pros than any other trainer. Tom Hopkins and Zig Ziglar use his training materials when selling seats to their own seminars. Listen as Stan Ballou reveals his ten most fascinating stories about his biggest sales. Each story contains a valuable sales lesson that you can start using as soon as today. In this interview, you're going to learn how to identify and use a prospect's defense mechanisms to your advantages. You'll learn how to close more sales using instructional statements and continuation phrases. You'll learn how to build up benefits to get the customer to prepay. You'll learn the secrets to get prospects to beg for your product. You'll learn how to position yourself as a big fish. You'll learn how to use a tape recorder once each day to increase your own sales records, and much, much more. Stan exposes the deep-seated psychology of selling and salesmanship. It's no surprise that his power-packed audio and video programs Double your income selling on the phone and 90 telemarketing selling skills are sold in 45 countries worldwide. Get ready to learn lessons in sales that you'll be able to remember. Enjoy. So where are you? What part of the country are you located in?
1: in Florida,
0: just north of Daytona Beach. I'm from Atlanta originally. When I was 15 and 16, Daytona was the place to go. Me and my friends, we used to go down to Daytona. Well, actually, we used to go to Ormond Beach as a family for family vacation. We stayed at the Ormond Beach Holiday Club. It was right there on the ocean. And then as I grew up, I used to visit Daytona with my friends as I went through high school. And we even had a family reunion back down in Daytona two years ago.
1: I actually live in Ormond Beach right on the ocean. Yeah. Well, I love
0: Daytona. It's definitely a different kind of ocean than here in San Diego. Got a different smell to it. The sand is different. When I think of the beach, that's what I think about. I think about the Florida beaches.
1: Well, I love the power of your waves on the West Coast. We very rarely get anything that big here. Yeah. Are you from there originally? No. Born and raised in the Midwest. Spent 34 years in Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. And then moved to Florida and thought I died and went to heaven.
0: Alright. What brought
1: you out to Florida? Actually followed my original mentor down here after I had quit working for him the last time he relocated, supposedly to retire in Florida and kept calling me and he used to call me Big Guy. He'd say, Hey big guy, you gotta come to Florida I said, Why, Jerry? Oh, he said, man, he said, every day the sun is shining, the sky is blue, flowers are blooming, birds are chirping, you'll have a whole new attitude. And at the time, I was in Flint, Michigan, which is kind of the armpit of mid-America. And I believe there's only one city, believe it or not, in the United States that gets less sunshine than Flint, and I believe it's Seattle or Spokane or something, for about eight months of the year. It's like living in gray pea soup with everything dead around you. One thing led to another, and he had come out of retirement, got back in the furniture business, only had two stores, and was going up against. pretty strong competition, and he talked me into moving down to Florida for supposedly a 90-day evaluation, take over the two stores, and decide whether or not he needed to open three or four or five more to be competitive or whether we should go do a GOV. So that's why I came to Florida. So what was his name, and how did he
0: become your mentor, and what's the story behind that?
1: Well, originally, I had worked for... Jerry Ross, that is his name. He's not famous or anything. Several different times over a three- or four-year period, we used to call it Ross University because you got one heck of an education. He had been a high school dropout, married with three kids before he was 18, and was a self-made millionaire by the time he was 21 and a multimillionaire by the time he was 23. Was that all in the furniture business? Basically, yes. And I had done a variety of work with him. And the only way you could ever get a raise or a promotion or a compliment was literally to quit. And then a month or two would go by or whatever, sometimes only a few weeks. And he would come and romance you, if you would, to come back to work for him. We used to call him the flute player, like a snake charmer would charm a snake. He could be phenomenally warm and personable when he wanted to be. And he had invited me at the time. He had a summer home up on Mackinac Island, Michigan. And
0: how old were you
1: at that time? This is the age of 34. I had basically been bankrupt, divorced twice, never finished high school, and a self-made failure for the better part of 34 years. And Jerry called and invited my wife at the time and I up to Mackinac Island for a weekend. And I knew darn well why he wanted me to come up and visit, and that's to hire me back. And I said to him, I said, you know, I really appreciate it, but I'm not interested in coming back to work. And no, 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 just come on up, have a great weekend. I said, I'll call you back. And my wife and I talked about it. We really didn't want to take advantage of his generosity, but yet we both loved Mackinac Island. It's like going back in time, literally, horses and buggies and... And bicycles and for three months of the year, it's phenomenal. So anyhow, making a long story short, I decided to write down a figure that would be so much more than what he'd ever paid me that when it finally came down for him to try to pitch me to come back to work, I would pull out this figure and of course it'd be much higher than what he offered and that way I could justify going up there for the weekend. Make a long story short, we went up there, had a great time. Sunday afternoon, we were sitting around by the pool and Jerry said, you know, I like where your head's at. I like your attitude. Here's your position, which was basically general manager. Here's your responsibilities and here's what I'm going to pay you. Well, the amount that he had written down was much higher than the figure I had written down. But basically I said, okay, I'll be to work tomorrow morning. Well, the next morning I walked into his office. I said, Jerry, I got a challenge. He said, oh, I know. I said, what do you mean you know? He said, I'm paying you more than what you were going to ask me for. I said, how in the hell did you know that? He said, well, because that's your main problem. That's your main challenge in life. I said, what's that? He said, low self-esteem, low self-worth. He said, I see talent in you that you don't even see. He said, you're a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He said, I've never seen such a waste of talent. He said, if you're finally ready, willing, and able to make some changes, I'll be your mentor. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm divorced twice, never finished high school, had to borrow money to pay my rent, I was driving a 15-year-old Volkswagen, I had to park it on a hill to push it and get started, living on macaroni and cheese for three straight months. And I finally woke up, Michael, and said, you know, whatever game plan I've been on for 34 years hasn't been working real well, okay, it's time for a new game plan. I bought in 100%. I said, okay, what do I need to do to deserve this money, to earn this money? He said, become a master of your craft. I said, how do I do that? He said, University of California did a study that if any of us invest one hour a day studying any one subject, within three years we'd have the equivalent of a college degree in that subject. Within five years we would be a world-renowned expert in that one subject. I said, okay. I asked the question we always ask, what's in it for me? He said, Stan, in five years, you could produce recordings. Back then, didn't even have cassettes. My gosh, they were eight track tapes. But he said, you could produce recordings, write books. He said, you you could travel the world, and companies will pay you enormous amounts of money for your knowledge in that one area. So that's how it all started. Were you working for his furniture stores? Basically, he made me the general manager at the time. This was in Flint, Michigan. He had two giant what they're called warehouse showrooms, like the Levitt's, where it's a hundred, hundred and fifty thousand square foot building. They've got two or 300 rooms of furniture on display, and then the furniture's in big racks. And you come out, you pick out what you want, and they literally stuff it in your trunk, tie it on top of your car, or they rent you a trailer, and you take it home. So he had two furniture stores. Plus, he was pretty heavily into real estate, I believe, at the time. We had about 600,000 square foot of real estate. So I was also responsible for leasing that out. I was responsible for hiring and training about 35 salespeople, managing his office staff. And from time to time, he would get involved in other projects. It was constantly something new almost every week. So how long were you working with him? All in all, I worked with him for about a total of three years over a five-year period. So, again, I left several times and came back. The last time, I worked with him for about six months, and then that's when he retired and moved to Florida, and we parted friends almost for good, although, again, I ended up coming down to Florida. Long story short, he asked me to evaluate his two stores. In Flint, Michigan, at the time, Michael, there was like two newspapers, three TV stations and eight radio stations, and we basically owned that market. Now he was in Miami, and he couldn't buy media time like he had in Flint, Michigan, so he was getting eaten alive by all the big chains that were down there. So I evaluated the situation and really within one week said, let's do a GOV and lease or sell the buildings. What's a GOB? Going out of business. Oh, I got you. Interestingly enough, at the time, I don't know what the laws are now, but basically you got a license from the city and you had 30 days to run your GOB. They basically freeze your inventory and you sell out and you close your doors. Well, I found a couple of loopholes in the law and we were actually able to run the GOB for 90 days. I had trucks coming in at 2, 3, and 4 in the morning loading furniture in the back door. And the inspectors would come out once a week and they'd say, geez, it looks like you've got as much furniture as you had
0: last week, maybe more. I said, yes, sales have been slow. Hey, let's talk about some of these stories. I asked you to kind of go through some of your files and pull out some of the greatest sales stories that you've had over the last 30 years in your career and kind of tie a lesson to each one so the listeners can hear the exciting story and learn the lesson from what you
1: learned. Can we go through some of these? sure, Michael. I'll tell you, it was a real challenge because I had to search back in my memory. I'm known as a lot of things, the king of cash erectomies because I have the ability to extract large amounts of money from people. I'm known as the trainer that has trained more six and seven figure a year income earning sales pros than any other trainer. And I love to talk about it and train about it, but I hadn't ever really sat down and tried to pick out the 10 biggest sales I've made until you challenged me to do that. So I ended up getting a of an education in the process. I talked earlier about going to Miami and running the going out of business sale for my mentor. Well, within 90 days, we had two huge buildings. And one of, I would call, one of my 10 biggest sales was we had a 120,000-square-foot building that I was able to negotiate a lease with a bank. And I guess for the time being, at least we'll leave that bank's name anonymous. But when I went in to negotiate the details of this 10-year lease with a 10-year option, I have to share with you, Michael, I was sitting at one end of this long board table in this conference room. At the other end was the matriarch of this bank, 70-some years old. And on one side, there was literally 10 or 12 real estate specialists, and on the other side of the table, eight or ten attorneys. And I was going up against this matriarch of the banking industry and about 20 supposed experts in their field.
0: Can I ask you this? How did the lead come in for the bank? Do you remember where that occurred? Was there a four lease on the building at that time and then the bank contacted you?
1: There was a four lease on the building, but many, many years ago, of course, Jerry had told me to be proactive, not reactive. So he had taught me how to prospect, ask for referrals. You know, if you're not interested in a new location, who do you know that's expanding? Or needs a bigger location, I had found the lead, basically. Okay. So we started negotiating, and we had purposely built in a whole series of BS requests, if you will, stipulations that we knew they would throw out.
0: Well, what's the strategy in doing
1: that? get to the bottom line, which was to at least get a cost of living increase thrown in. At the time, this would have been in the late 70s, there was 8%, you 10%, know, 12% cost of living, inflation, if you will, and I wanted to have something in there to protect us. So the strategy was that we would confuse them, if you will, with all of these goofy little requests and let their stuff, if you would. The attorneys kept saying, no, we can't live with that. And the real estate expert would say, oh, that's out of line. That's way too much. So we let them beat us down, if you will, repeatedly. So we finally got to the cost of living, which I had left for last, and I said, well, I suppose you're not going to even let me have a cost of living increase. Well, no, you know, we know it's up there, and we know you've got to do something, but we're not going to give you 8% a year. So bottom line is we ended up settling on 5% a year. Well, we shook hands, signed the paperwork. It was interesting when we were done, Michael, because many of the attorneys and real estate people wanted to know where I graduated from, and, of course, they were referring to college. I didn't have the heart to tell him I never even finished high school. But about a month later, one of the lead attorneys called up and said, Stan, we've got a little situation here we need to clarify. I said, what's that, Mr. Jones? And he said, well, you know, page 18, paragraph 36B or whatever, the way it's worded, it could actually be construed as possibly being that we would have to pay a cost of living every year, and it would be compounded. So next year, we'd have to pay 105%. The following year, we'd pay five more percent, but it'd be based on 105, and, of course, we couldn't do that. I said, well, you know, Mr. Jones, that's exactly why we gave in on all the other points is to get that. So the bottom line is a bank. And all their attorneys and all their real estate people couldn't figure out that the way we had it worded, it was 5% a year, pounded.
0: You're listening to an exclusive interview found on Michael Sinoff's hardtofindseminars.com.
1: Oh, so you all intentionally
0: wrote it up that way.
1: Absolutely. Bottom line is, every year for the next 10 or 12 years, Jerry would call me once a year on the anniversary date of the lease just to say thank you. It was the single biggest sale that he'd ever made or that we'd ever made together.
0: And they stuck with it and
1: couldn't get out of it. They couldn't get out of it. It was the 10-year option. The only way they finally got out of it was, I believe, around year 12, and I was no longer with him, of course, at the time. But I believe around year 12, they finally bought the building from him, which they had an option to buy, and the option was similarly worded. So they ended up paying through the nose to buy the building, way more than what it was worth at the time, just to get out of the lease they were in that was eating them alive. Wow.
0: So what's the lesson here for my students with that story?
1: Well, let them worry about the small stuff, and they'll have a tendency to overlook the big stuff.
0: That's a great story. Number two you have here, selling a
1: 100,000-square-foot building to TASCO. Who is TASCO? Well, first of all, TASCO is one of the leading manufacturers of binoculars, and this was the second building that Jerry Ross had that, after our G O B sale, we just had a 100,000-square-foot building sitting doing nothing. So he owned these buildings, right? Oh, yeah, he had bought them. And it was right on the Palmetto Expressway, though, which is a main thoroughfare in the Miami area a large pylon attached to the building. Research the sign laws, and you couldn't put up billboards or signs along there. But if you had a pylon that was attached to your building, you were grandfathered in, and you could just about put anything on this pylon you wanted to.
0: Explain what a pylon is.
1: If you can imagine a 100,000-square-foot building that's like three stories high, and all of a sudden there is a section coming out that's maybe six stories high and, oh, 80 to 100 feet long, only a couple of feet thick but it's like a huge metal signboard attached to your building. I got you. Is that the purpose they built them for signage? Right. Okay. They weren't allowed to do it anymore, but, again, you were grandfathered in. All right, I found out Pasco was in a very bad part of Miami. They owned the building, and they needed to expand. There was no room to expand. There was a lot of vandalism, and I found that they might be looking for a bigger, better place. So I also did a little checking. I drove by, and I saw that they had signs everywhere, Casco, this. They had these little magnetic signs on the side of the vehicles. Casco was everywhere. And I did some checking and found out the owner had a huge, huge ego. Well, bottom line is I got an appointment with him. I went in, and I had a aerial shot taken of our building ahead of time. I had done a little artwork, or had my art department superimpose their logo on this pylon. I had all the numbers from the Department of Transportation as far as how many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cars passed this building every day, I had this picture blown up into a huge, must have been like four feet by six feet, had it covered with purple velvet, which I found out, believe it or not. his favorite color. Had it on a tripod, and I set it up, and then I sat down and started talking to him, and he kept looking over at this thing, saying, "What's that?" Well, we'll get to that in just a second. Here's what we can do for you. Got that and I laid out the building and all the details, and of course it was way more than they wanted to spend. And he said, "No, he said, I don't need that kind of exposure. It's too expensive. We don't need to be out there." One thing led to another, and I started to leave, and he said, "Well, wait a minute. What the heck is behind the?" Purple curtain thing. You know, you've already said no, so there's no sense showing it to you. Well, I want to see it. And so I pulled back the purple velvet, and here's this phenomenal color aerial shot of this building with his logo plastered on the pylon. He sat there and looked at it, and he said, you, SOB, said you did your homework, didn't you? I said, yeah, I guess I did. And he said, all right, let's meet tomorrow. So the next day, we started meeting with his real estate people and his attorneys, and within, oh, I don't know, two or three weeks, they owned the building. And it was sold at a real premium? Yeah, it was absolutely a premium price because, again, the building was in great shape. It was right on the Palmetto, easy access. It was basically set up as a warehouse. We'd already had offices built in one section. It was real easy to convert to just about anything they needed. So they needed office space, they needed manufacturing, they needed warehousing space. They needed loading docks, everything that they needed we had in abundance, probably a little more than they actually did need, but that was part of my sales presentation also is that you could grow into it and I'd even found the law that he could have sublet one end of it if he needed to for the time being just to help offset, you know, his monthly payments until he could grow into it, but as it turned out they grew into it real quick. And of course the lesson there it really was this simple, Michael, I appealed to the owner's ego that simple.
0: So how can professional salespeople appeal to their prospect's ego to generate more sales or maybe generate a better presentation when they're prospecting?
1: Uh, what an astute question. I guess what I'll share is that not every skill or technique is going to work with every sales pro, with every prospect or customer. That's why you need to have a variety in your arsenal. But in this particular case, Keep in mind that most people want to be loved. They want to be respected. One of the great lines a lot of times you can use for a manager is, wow, this is going to make you look like a hero, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You know, whether it's saving money for their company or, you know, whatever. Make somebody feel important. Everybody wants to know what's in it for me. You know, they may be an employee, a manager, or sometimes even the owner. They want to be respected. They want to be looked up to. They all have an ego to some degree. Not always that big of an ego, but... Usually, the more important someone is, the more money they have, the deeper the pockets they have, they have a bigger ego. Now, interestingly enough, most of those deep pocket people also hold their cards very close to their chest. They don't like to go necessarily run around and brag about it. Let me give you a quick example, if I may. If you're qualifying, let's say, someone and say, tell me a little bit about the kind of work you do. Well, someone with deep pockets is liable to say, I'm in banking. So again, what does that mean? I don't know if the guy's a bank teller or what, so I would use a continuation phrase like, interesting, tell me more. Well, I own three banks here in West Palm Beach. Using a continuation phrase, I didn't buy into the first response because the first response is not necessarily always the whole truth and nothing but the truth. A lot of times you have to use a continuation phrase to get them to explain, justify, or enhance their original short answer.
0: Right. When he says, I'm in banking, he's kind of being short he really doesn't want to share that much about himself.
1: Is that what you're saying? Actually, because he figures if I know how deep his pockets are, then I'm going to get more money out of him. That's a
0: good technique. The continuation phrase, tell me more.
1: Oh, those three magic words, tell me more, I cannot stress enough. And while we're on the subject, one of the things that I teach people is selling is so simple. All you need to do is find out what you need to do or say to make a sale. And the way to do that is qualifying, of course. But in Selling 101, we were taught there's open ended and closed end questions. And, of course, open-ended are better because they give you more information. But depending on your product or service, you may have five, eight, ten questions that you need to ask, and it can almost end up sounding like an FBI interrogation. So one of the advanced techniques I teach with the Megabuck income producers I work with is we qualify without asking questions. We use instructional statements like, share with me a little bit about your family. Now, if you listen carefully, that's not a question, Michael. That's, if you will, a direct order. But the way you say it, it will sound much more conversational and less confrontational. So bring me up to date on the best investments you've ever made. Fill me in on what it would take to make you happy. Tell me more about These are all lead-ins to instructional statements. And even then, whatever their answer is, don't go to your next subject. Immediately use a continuation phrase like, then what happened? Tell me more. Please continue. And you get them to explain, justify, or enhance, embellish, if you will, their original response. And now you've got the whole truth. Depending on your product or service, these people have been qualified by many other salespeople selling the same thing. And all the salespeople use basically the same scripted questions. Over a period of time, our prospects have developed scripted answers for these scripted questions, and thereby, that's where the term buyers or liars came from. You're not getting the whole truth when you just ask the standard qualifying questions that everybody else asks.
0: And these are techniques to get them to talk, so you could do your job listening, so you can determine what exactly this prospect needs or wants.
1: Exactly.
0: Okay, so you compare this to the questions that they're used to. You're going to come out with a lot more information with these techniques.
1: Yeah. By using instructional statements, you'll get much more than with closed or even open-ended questions. And then, by using continuation phrases... You're actually showing them that you have a sincere interest in whatever they're talking about. And people would rather talk about themselves than hear about the 10 most famous people that ever lived. So if you give a person an opportunity to open up and talk about at least one of his favorite subjects, which is himself or herself, their job or career or their business or their family, they will open up and tell you things to a complete stranger that you're just amazed.
0: Now, can these techniques also be used over the phone for cold calling?
1: Oh, absolutely. Quite frankly, you can apply them to -to face-to-face, belly button-to-belly button. Even though I specialize in telemarketing, I do a ton of work in direct sales where it's one-on-one. Nothing is ever done on the phone. Maybe some prospecting, maybe setting an appointment, but the actual sales process is one-on-one.
0: Well, since we're talking a little bit about cold calling, can you tell me about another story, a story you told me about making $265,000 sale on a cold call?
1: You have done your research. This is when I was still in selling before I became a trainer and I was cold calling up into New Jersey one night and I got a hold of a doctor. What were you selling? I was selling investments, high ticket items. So I got about four words out of my mouth, and he heard the word investments and proceeded to yell, holler, scream, cuss at me, and slam the phone in my ear. Well, one of the things that I teach in certain situations is feel free to call back and say, Hey, Doc, I'm sorry, this is Stan again. I apologize. We must have got disconnected. And then you continue your talk.
0: So you act like you get hung up on.
1: Right. The reason you do that is because, believe it or not, the majority of the people that do yell and scream and cuss at you and hang up on you, that is their only line of defense. And if you can get through that, they usually are very easy to sell. It's almost like going out cold calling, knocking on doors, where you see the sign that says no solicitors allowed. They're easy sells, and they know it. And they're trying to keep you away. Oh, hey. I called him back. I said, hey, Doc, stand again, I apologize. We must have got disconnected. And he was the exception to the rule. He said, well, you little SOB, we didn't get disconnected. I hung up on you, and I'm going to do it again. And if you ever call me back again, I'm going to report you to the NASD, the CFTC, the State Attorney General's Office, and I'll call my mother. And he slammed the phone in my ear again. So I called back, and of course, at this time, you normally get a busy signal. And I tried every five minutes or so and kept getting a busy signal. Well, about a half hour later, somebody must have walked by his phone, saw it was off the hook, and it was going beep, 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 and they must have put it back on the cradle. Because when I called about 30 minutes later, it rang through and he answered the phone. He said, yeah. I said, Doc, before you hang up on me a third time, i got to ask you one quick question. Guess what he said? What? What? Who had control? You did. Absolutely. Always remember, and this is a great skill, curiosity always overpowers programming. He was programmed to blow me off the phone again, but he couldn't get the words out of his mouth. Just like with the Tesco. Oh, exactly. Yeah, there's a correlation there. I said, you yeah, know, before you hang up on me a third time, I've got to ask you a quick question. What? I said, it sounds like you've had some god-awful experiences before in the investment arena over the phone. And he said, I sure have. I said, oh, I am so sorry. Tell me more. And for the next two minutes, he told me everything I needed to know. He yelled and screamed, but interestingly enough, it was almost like letting the air out of a hot air balloon. The longer he talked, the mellower he became. And he was saying things like, you know, oh, this guy kept calling me from South Florida. He'd call me two, three times a day for a month until I finally bought. Hello, is this a good prospect? Yeah. Yeah, you stay with him long enough. You'll sell him. And then I said, my God, what happened then, Doc? Oh, he said, then he made me all these promises, and I sent him $100,000. Oh, my God, $100,000 on a first sale? Holy smokes. So I said, what happened then? Oh, I lost it all. I said, Doc, I am so, so sorry. I said, i got to ask you, though, as I'm getting ready to write, Doc, what in the world did this guy tell you over the phone to get you excited enough about sending him $100,000? And I'm writing. And I'm saying, go on. Please continue. And then what happened? What did he say next? I don't know what. He was telling me exactly how this guy told him. For more
0: exclusive interviews on business, marketing, advertising, and copywriting, go to Michael Senoff's hardtofindseminars.com. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, he's giving you his buying strategy.
1: Exactly what his hot button was, what objections or concerns he had, and how the guy overcame them. Now, interestingly enough, and this is very important, he was also telling me some words and phrases that he did not want me to use. These are words and phrases that he associated with a very painful experience. You follow me?
0: Yeah, do you remember what the, a couple of them were?
1: Not off the top of my head, but when I teach people to sell investments, two of the key questions we do ask is, Share with me, and again, it's not really a question, it's an instructional statement, but share with me the very best investment you ever had. Now, I don't really care so much what it was. Michael, what I'm looking for here is a couple of favorite words or phrases that this prospect uses to describe this pleasurable experience. Because if I'm real smart, if they legally fit what I'm selling, I'm going to use those words and phrases. 99% of the people will not know what's happening when you're using their favorite words or phrases. All they do know is they're starting to feel real comfortable communicating with you. On the other end, we also say, now, without causing you too much pain, what was the worst one you ever got into and what happened? Again, I don't necessarily care what it was. I'm looking for words and phrases that they use that they associate with this bad, painful experience because if I'm real smart, I'm going to write them down and never use them. Make sense? Makes perfect sense, yes. The bottom line was, I said, Doc, I said, I'm said, i so sorry. I said, I do thank you for sharing. He said, you know, he said, I kind of like you. Now, listen to this. He had been talking for two, three, four minutes. All I'd been doing is leading the conversation by saying, go on, tell me more, what happened next, what did he say next. All I'd been doing is listening. But he ended up saying, you know, I kind of like you. What the heck have you got? And at this point, I started using takeaways. I said, Doc, believe me, it's not the right time to discuss that now. What's the strategy? Why did you choose
0: takeaways at that point?
1: Because I wanted him to beg me ask me to sell him, I didn't want to try to be another salesman. I didn't want to be pushy like this other salesman had been. I wanted to use just the opposite approach, have him try to sell himself instead of me trying to sell him. So I started using takeaways. I said, Doc, trust me, it's not the right time. Maybe on a future conversation. Well, what do you got? I said, Doc, trust me, it's very risky. And he had used the word trust several times in a good way, so I kept using this word back. I said, again, trust me, it's very risky, you could lose all your money, and that's the last thing you need to do is get involved in another investment where you could lose all your money. Well, what the heck is it? I said, Doc, i tell you what, let's talk in about a week and... He said, damn it, what the heck you got? I said, all right, if you insist. I do. Okay. I proceeded to tell him what we sold and did all the disclaimers, did everything legal. And he said, you know, I like that. The bottom line was about 20 minutes after, he had already hung up on me two times. He said, you got a deal. He said, I'll wire the money tomorrow. He opened up a new account the next morning, wire-transferred $265,000. Wow, that's incredible. What was your commission on that? Do you remember? Oh, at the time, it was about 4%. Do the math. It was a pretty good day in paradise. The minute that happened, I went around to about 50 other salespeople that were on the same floor as I was, and I said, please, give me anyone that hangs up on you, anybody that yells at you and cusses at you. I'll buy the darn leads. And did you get any? Yes. Were you able to turn others around the same way? Yes. And that's when I found that that is basically their only line of defense. If they can blow you off in the first five or ten seconds like they do, 98 or 99% of the other schmucks that call them, you got a good shot at getting them to open up. And the reason they blow you off is because they have pain. They have hurt. Something bad has happened to them. And you can never sell. They will not be receptive to anything new until they dump their garbage. You have to give them that outlet to let them tell you all about what happened. Now in the process, two great things happen. One, they're getting rid of some of this anger and pain and hatefulness that they have been storing up for the next guy that calls them or the next gal that calls them on the phone. But at the same time, you're also finding out how they were sold in the past.
0: That is very powerful. I really like what you're explaining here because at the same time, to tell me more, you're looking for their unconscious buying patterns, and you're listening and you're getting him to tell you the exact way he buys, and then you're mirroring him with some of the words, positive words, and you're avoiding the negative words to increase the chance of that sale.
1: Oh, wow. You're taking notes. That's good stuff. Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. And again, that's one of the beauties about being able to do business the phone is I don't have to worry about looking interested or how I'm sitting or anything else. I can concentrate 100% on listening to him, what he's saying, how he's saying it, what does he really mean, what are the words he's using, how is he using them, and I can take enormous notes. And interestingly enough, you know Mike Brooks, Mr. Inside Sales? I do not. Alright, you might even interview him. Mike has been a protege. He now has a best-selling book out on Amazon. We met back in the 80s, and the way a lot of people know about me is he was struggling to even stay in last place in his sales organization, and his manager said here, Buy these tapes, back then it was cassette tapes, he said, from this guy named Blue, he said, you know, this is the last hope for you. Anyhow, Mike bought my tapes and within 30 days became the top salesman in that company, went on to double his income every year for three years, became a millionaire, and now he's out teaching others how to do basically followed in my footsteps. Mike will tell you the single greatest catalyst, if you will, for him turning his career around was that he had heard me on one of my tapes say, the greatest thing you can ever do to improve your career is tape record and critique one phone call a day. You don't need a manager. You don't need seminars. All you need to do is listen to yourself, and you'll hear whether or not you were pacing yourself to your prospect, or you were stepping on their answers, or he asked you what time it was, and three minutes later, you're telling him how to build a clock because you're too wordy, or you're not even answering his question, or whatever the case may be. It's phenomenal what that one technique will do for you. Also, just to recap on these
0: prospects who hang up on you, what appears to most salespeople probably even professional salespeople, is that this is going to be your toughest client when it's really the opposite. It could be your easiest one and best sale.
1: Exactly, and the lesson to be learned there is I earned the right to make a presentation by listening. I allowed him to dump all of his garbage. In the process, I was finding out how he was sold before, and by tweaking it a little bit, I got him to go, instead of 100000 hundred thousand, two hundred sixty-five thousand. 265000
0: How much today should professional salespeople and salespeople present with presentations? Is that a good strategy?
1: Well, it's an interesting question because a lot of times... The sales process might not all take place at one sitting or on one phone call. Depending on your product or service, you may be doing your qualifying and setting an appointment and then going over to visit with them to make the presentation. Or you may be qualifying on the phone by law, sending out a prospectus or something, and then calling them back to do your presentation. So it's not always done at the same time. Yes, there are some distinct steps. The qualifying process should be about 80-20, which is 20% me talking, 80% me listening. The presentation stage should just be the opposite, which is about 80% me presenting, talking, and the prospect 20% talking. So yes, they will have a couple questions. They will have a couple of concerns. They will have a couple objections. If I'm not getting anything from them in the way of feedback, I'm going to elicit some feedback just by using some tie-downs or assumptive tie-downs or questions just to make sure that, you know, I'm doing my job right. And interestingly enough, it can be the wording you use. I never teach people to say, do you follow me? That's almost like implying that they could be stupid, that they're not smart enough to follow you. Instead, you say, am I making myself clear? Did I explain that properly? Little minor things like that won't necessarily make or break your career. But what I teach salespeople is if you'll add one skill or technique to your arsenal a day, that's five a week, that's 22 a month, that's 250 a year. My God, you'll be able to go elephant hunting with a stealth bomber instead of a pea shooter.
0: That's great. Let's do another story.
1: How you started
0: your career as a trainer?
1: My reputation was that I doubled my income every year for five straight years, which is true. Some I retired to my Arabian horse farm that I was building on the St. Johns River, bought a bass boat went fishing every morning and every evening and within about 2 weeks was bored to death <laughs> so I knew I could sell. I knew I had made selling a science, if you will, because remember that one hour a day for five years? Well, I didn't quit at the end of five years. I kept investing that hour a day. In fact, interestingly enough, Michael, this past July, I just celebrated my 31st anniversary of investing at least one hour a day to become a little better today than I was yesterday.
0: Wow, that's great. Well, if you ever run out of material, let me know. I've got some stuff on the site for you.
1: Believe me, I'll plug your site to no end when you discovered me and told me about your site. Man, I have been on it downloading and listening and see, this is the beauty of it. There's no excuse for a bad year, a bad month, a bad week or even a bad day in selling. All the masters that have gone before us have committed their skills, their techniques, their attitudes, their mindsets, their timetables, anything and everything you ever want to know is already there. It's either in print or in your case, it's the spoken word which is even more powerful to most of us than the written word. It's there, all the great ones. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone that any waking moment, why turn on the boob tube, you know, and watch two and three quarters hours a day of people entertaining you when you could invest some time every day to become a master of your craft. So there's a plug for your site.
0: I appreciate it. And there's one particular interview you may be interested in. It's with Melvin Powers. He was a great, famous mail order man. He's still alive. He's in his 80s. He doesn't like me saying his age. But he was very... Very heavily into Arabian horses as well, and he was a publisher. He was Wilshire Books, and he publishes a whole line of books on horse racing and Arabian horses. And he was into that as well for a
1: long time. I will definitely look him up and listen to him and exchange some emails. I've heard of him by reputation. Now I started my career as a trainer, I went ahead and I sat down at the dining room table and I started organizing all of the skills and techniques that I had been using. It was almost like swipe files, organizing it all into the different segments like the approach, how to keep from being blown off in the first 10 seconds, how to work through screeners, how to arouse interest with benefits how to bridge into the qualifying, how to qualify properly in less time for larger amounts of money, how to bridge into the presentation or set a firm appointment, how to call back for your presentation and not get blown off the phone again. You know, I read it and I'm not interested or whatever, haven't read it yet, call me back in a week and I'll stroke you some more. How to do add-on or step-up selling so I can write larger orders, how to overcome objections, how to close sales how to get referrals, that's another thing I'm known as the king of referrals, you know, what to do after the sale. And I started organizing all this, and then I hired an English major to go into a recording studio with me because English was never one of my best subjects, and I wanted to make sure I wasn't mispronouncing anything or using it in the wrong context. And I recorded my first six-pack, if you will, six audio tapes, called it double your income selling on the phone, had a tape duplicator, I think make up 50 sets, and got on the phone, started calling stock brokerage companies, and basically cold-called asking for the manager. And Stan Ballew does not like rejection, so I used Pat Murphy. And I'd say, hi, Pat Murphy here. I understand you guys do business over the phone. Yeah, how many salespeople? Six, great. You know, there's a new set of cassette tapes out called Double Your Income Selling in the Phone. They're really great, and you ought to get a set. And they'd say, well, who's it by? And some guy by the name of Stan Blue, yeah, I never heard of him. You know, I hadn't either until I listened to his tapes, but I'll tell you, they are powerful. And, in fact, you know, Nightingale Conant, which is the largest manufacturer of tapes in the world, only gives you a 30-day money-back guarantee. This guy stand gives you a 90-day money-back guarantee. So, hey, use them for 90 days. I don't care if you don't like the color of the ink on the label. Send them back, get your money back, or cancel your credit card charge, and it's a win-win situation. How many sets did you want? And so basically, I started selling my tapes over the phone. Interestingly enough, within a week or two, the phone would start ringing. Hello, yeah, it's Stan Blue there. Hold on, let me transfer your call. Hi, this is Stan. Hey, Stan, we bought you your tapes a week or two ago from that Pat Murphy guy. Yeah, Pat's the character, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Listen, this is some good stuff here. Do you ever do live dates? And I'd say, do I do live dates? You were lucky to catch me on the phone. i would never done a live date in my life, Michael. Yeah, I got you. So they'd say, well, if we were interested in having you come in and do some training, what do you charge? I'd say, well, what's your budget? Well, whatever figure they'd give me, I'd say, ooh, which is what I call the disappointed technique. And they'd always say, why, do we need more? Well, Yeah. We'd basically arrive at a ballpark figure, and they'd say, well, what can you do for us? I'd say, well, let me ask you this, Mr. Manager. If you could wave a magic wand and improve three areas of your sales process that would dramatically impact your bottom line, like virtually overnight, what would they be? Well, they'd say write larger orders, open more new accounts, and get a lot more referrals. Well, we talk a little bit, and then I'd say, you know, Mr. Manager, in wrapping up, in a four-hour seminar, I believe that we can help your people open more new accounts, write larger orders, and get a lot more referrals. They'd say, wow, that's just what we need. <laughs> yeah. They'd say, well, when are you open? I'd say, whoa, man, I'd flip through my pages, you know, different ways, and I'd say, when did you need me? They'd say, well, we were hoping like next week. Oh, next week. Oh, wow, no. What day next week? Well, maybe like Tuesday morning. My well, golly, you know what? You're a lucky day. I am open Tuesday morning. So I'd go in and I'd do a date. At the end, they'd say, wow, this is great. Do you have any more? I'd say, oh, yeah, and it's a shame if you don't bring me back because my next presentation is so much better than this one. So I got repeat business, and, of course, being the king of referrals, I'd also say, you know, hey, without telling me your direct competition, for crying out loud, you got to know some other managers from other investment houses. Who do you know that could need a shot in the arm? So I'd get referrals.
0: When you created the tapes, wasn't your intention to do training like that, or was that just... absolutely. It was, okay.
1: Everybody else in the industry basically put a trifold brochure or flyer together, mailed it out, and then hoped the phone would ring. They were begging for people to buy their products or, better yet, book them. Okay, what I did is I turned the whole process around. I dealt from a position of power. I made them come to me and ask me to come and do training for them by selling them my product first just completely backwards from anybody else that was doing it at the time. Within one year from the day I was doing nothing except bass fishing and feeding my horses, Within one year, I had taken a three car garage on my property, remodeled it into about 600 square feet of offices. In those 600 feet, believe it or not, I had a staff of three people that were just shipping product, booking my travel, and keeping track of my Marriott points and my airline miles, and I had five people on the phone full time selling my tapes over the phone. And I was on the road doing up to 22 engagements a month for the next 20 years. 20 years? What were you selling your
0: engagements for? And how much at that
1: time? I started my career in late 83 as far as a speaker trainer. And back then, if it was around Florida, it could be as low as a thousand to fifteen hundred for a four hour seminar. If it was out of Florida, it was usually two to three thousand because I did pay my own expenses. I found from a couple speakers that after the magic wears off sometimes, then a month later, your client gets a bill for the airline or the hotel for them to pay. Sometimes didn't work real well. Plus, I didn't want to argue with somebody why I stayed at a Marriott rather than a Holiday Inn or why I flew first class instead of coach or whatever. I just booked it as an all-inclusive, I cover all travel and expenses. Were you selling product in the room? My God, yes. And these came from my years when I worked with American Sales Masters, which is another old story. But let me get back to, yes... I would go in and say, now, I'm going to do the presentation. Here's the introduction. For any speakers that are out there, this will help you, believe me. The person introducing you can really kind of set the tone for the entire meeting. If you just let them get up there and say, okay, guys, get your attention. We've got some guy here, a stand for the, uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: Come
1: in and talk with us a little bit more and try to get you guys to sell some more so you don't get fired. I had a standard introduction. I made them read that just made me sound like the second coming. And before we actually went on stage, I'd say, now at the end of the program, I'm going to be offering them my tapes. If you like what you heard on the tapes, you're going to darn sure want them to have those tapes because not just four hours today, they can actually have me riding with them in their car to and from work. And the spaced repetition, I'd sell them on the idea of power of listening to the spoken word. And what I would do is say, look, If it was volume one, it was $125. Let's say it's both volumes. Within the second year, I had produced volume two. Both volumes are like $197. And believe it or not, 20 years later, they're still that price, and they're sold in 45 countries. Why? Because the content is that great, number one. Number two, there's no mistakes on it because I had the English major in there, and I took out any second takes or any mistakes or screw-ups or whatever. The most content-rich series ever produced on selling.
0: What's the title
1: of them again? Double Your Income Selling on the Phone. But again, 95% of it can be applied to -to face-to-face selling.
0: You've got a volume one and volume two?
1: Yeah, and my website is www.stanballew.com, real simple, all one word, S-T-A-N-B-I-L-L-U-E.com. My DVDs, my CDs, I've got all kinds of free stuff on there. My gosh, free articles, free positive affirmations, all kinds of neat stuff. Anyhow, I would say to him, what I can do is I can share this series with him at the end of my seminar and tell him rather than 200 bucks or 197 that for those interested today, the company's gonna pick up half of that. Now, you don't really have to pay me that half, I'm actually gonna discount it 50%, but they're gonna think that you're paying half of it. Now. Can you do me one other favor? Some of the guys may be a little tapped between paydays. Can you do a payroll deduction for those guys that don't have the cash or don't have a credit card? And then what I was leading to is basically getting one check when I walked out for 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or 50 cents, whatever, and then let them worry about collecting the money from their salespeople. Wow, where would you learn that strategy? (laughs) From, again, studying other great speakers and trainers, when I decided to be a speaker and trainer, I did an enormous amount of research who the best were, and most of them said they'd make two and three and four times as much income selling product in the back of the room as they ever did for a speaking fee. So I became a master of my craft at selling product. Yeah, that's great. Now, were your clients pretty willing to do the deduction on the paychecks and stuff? Were they okay with it? Once in a while, I'd have a couple people that would say, you know, no, I don't want to go into that accounting nightmare, you know, get them to pay either cash or credit card or whatever but I would work with them. You can't make everybody happy. Again, not every skill or technique or strategy is going to work every time with everybody. Let me just back up slightly, too, and share with you that when I decided to become a speaker and trainer, I joined the National Speakers Association. At the time, I believe there was something like 1,400 members. There's probably four or 5,000 today. But I got the membership list, and I noticed about 700 of them were motivational speakers, and the other 700 were sales trainers. And I said, you know, I don't want to be a small fish in the ocean. I want to be the whale in the pond. I want to be the big fish in the small pond. So I looked a little closer, and there were actually two people. There was a Tom Norman and a Mona Ling. I remember them very well that actually specialized in selling over the phone. And everyone that I could talk to said, hey, that's the coming thing. You don't want to drive around in your 120-degree car fighting traffic, making maybe two or three presentations a day, when you could make two or three presentations an hour by learning how to sell over the phone. So I decided to be a specialist, if you will, and build myself out as one of the greatest telemarketing sales trainers in the world and then spent the next 35 years living up to that reputation.
0: Well, wow, that's great. Okay, we're getting into the lesson about how you position yourself as a big fish, but when we talk about positioning, just three simple examples. When you were telemarketing on the phone, you used a different name so you could position Stan Baloo as the expert rather than Stan Baloo saying how great your tapes are, why don't you buy them. You also gave the example of when your clients would introduce you to the people you're speaking to, that was positioning as well because you had written and prepared the introduction so it made you more receptive to the listeners. And then also you gave an example of when you sold your tapes first and had your clients call you asking you for speaking engagement, that's all positioning as well.
1: Give you one more example of positioning. Remember I said at the end when I was sitting with the manager, I'd say, by the way, without giving me your direct competition, you've got to know other... Manager. Yeah, there you go, your referrals. But listen to what I would do. I would say, by the way, it would say, well, yeah, I know Bob Jones over at ABC Company. Okay, what's his number? They'd look it up in the roller decks. They'd give me the number. I'd say, would you mind giving Bob a call right now? Now, why did I do that? He's still in ether. He just saw 10 minutes, and when I hit the stage, I'm soaking wet in a minute and a half. He saw 10 minutes of me firing brimstone, getting his salespeople excited. They all held their hand up. They raised their hand. They wanted to invest in their future and buy my tapes. The guy's booking me for a repeat engagement already. He's in the ether. I got him to call the referral and say, Bob, man, we just had this kid, Stan balloon in here. Holy smokes, he got my people fired up. Man, you got to talk to him. you got to have him in your room. What would
0: you have him do? Would you say, call him, or I'm going to have him call you? How would you position so I'd say,
1: when they had the roller decks open and they were reading off the number to me, I'd say, you know what? Since you got a minute, you got the phone right there and the phone number in front of you, would you give Bob a call real quick? Well, okay. They'd pick up the phone and call Bob.
0: What would you do after they told them how great you were? Would you get on the phone? Sometimes
1: they would say, here, let me have you talk with him. And I just briefly introduce myself and say that I've got to catch a flight, but I will give you a call tomorrow. What's the best possible time to reach you in case I miss you then? When's an alternate time I can almost always be able to reach you? All right. Sum up the lesson for number four, how you started your sales
0: career, and then we'll go on to another story.
1: Always position yourself from power. Don't beg for business. If at all possible, position yourself in power and they will come to you and ask you for business. Okay, number five, getting a company with 50 offices to pay
0: for your video production. Tell me that story.
1: Well, I was selling a ton of cassette tapes, and everyone was talking about the training of the future is going to be video. You know, it's more powerful. You can't get a sales room together necessarily and have them listen to 30 minutes of an audio. It's going to be much more effective if you can turn on the TV and they can watch the speaker because there's another sense involved and all that good stuff. So I decided I would produce some video training. Well, I didn't really have or choose not to use my own money. I'm a big believer in OPM, other people's money. I had a client that I had started with that had 12 offices when I started with them. Within a year and a half, they had 50 offices. I was doing a great job for them. They actually had me under contract to do all of their 50 offices four times a year. Do the math on that. That was a sweet one.
0: You were presenting to all 50 of their offices. I
1: was going around once every three months to each one of the offices doing a four-hour seminar. They love me, so it was a natural for me to say, Look at as you keep expanding and I keep taking on more clients, I'm gonna not be able to do all these dates for you. In addition, when you got somebody brand new that just starting and maybe they just started the day after I was there, you don't wanna wait for three months until I come back to give them this kind of quality training, do you? Oh no. What do you got in mind? Well I'm gonna produce a video series. Here's the deal. Thing is gonna sell for fifteen hundred and ninety five dollars. It's gonna be called 90 Telemarketing Skills. It's gonna be on 18, at that time, videotapes, with five complete training sessions on each tape. It's gonna have a leader's guide. It's gonna have a workbook, which I'll give you the rights to reproduce for every telemarketer or salesperson you got. And here's the deal. You buy them for only a thousand dollars. Now, what's the catch? Well, you're gonna pay me today. You're not gonna get them for about a month. So. I got them to write me literally a $50,000 check. The whole series I figured was gonna cost me about 40 grand to film and edit and produce the way I wanted it because again I wanted it to be first class. As it ended up it cost me almost 50 grand but it was their money and I ended up having somebody else put up the money to produce my product.
0: Oh that's beautiful. What's the lesson?
1: Oh wow. Lesson is I built tremendous value and benefits to them to get them to buy and pay up front. Please continue to Part 2.
0: For more interviews like this, go to hardtofindseminars.com.